What do you do when you have nothing? Today's guest is Laura Toop, who lost her husband, her health, and her career in quick succession. Her then four-year-old nephew said, Auntie Lollipops, now that Chris is dead, you have nothing. For her, becoming a widow was one of the most overwhelming, isolating, anxiety-ridden experiences that she has ever gone through. And she learned how to live again. She says, you are always more than nothing, and that is enough to start. Welcome to another episode of the Share Your Stories series. This is a podcast experience where we get to explore humanity one heart at a time. I'm your host, this is Jenny Diltz, and I'm the founder of Grieving Coach. My website is grievingcoach.com, and you can find me also on LinkedIn at Jenny Diltz-GrievingCoach. Before we begin, I wanted to share a little bit about the background behind this series. I've been interviewing on other podcasts and have been networking with so many amazing people lately. And as I've been meeting them, I've learned so much from their stories and their experiences. And although my experiences may not be exactly as theirs, um, our experiences are different, I still get so much valuable wisdom from what I hear from them that I can apply in my own life. And so I wanted to be able to share those nuggets with others. Thanks to the nonprofit organization Reimagine, I have the opportunity and the support to be able to host podcast interviews where people can come and experience these stories live just as I have done. Um, these interviews in the Reimagine space are recorded and then I edit them and publish them in my public podcasting space. Share your story, exploring humanity one heart at a time. <laughs> and um, that can be found on anchor.fm, uh, Jenny-Diltz-Grievy-Coach. So today I'm talking with Laura Toop, who is a grief and loss expert based in the UK. Five years ago, she lost her husband, career, and health in quick succession. In her journey, she discovered that even in her darkest hour, she was nothing. And that was a good enough place to start. Her professional training includes NLP, CBT, person-centered therapy, and hypnotherapy for healing and health. Coupled with her lived experience of bereavement, loss, and grief, gained within the bo both the personal and corporate environment, she offers a unique insight into creating purpose and a passion for life beyond the pain of loss and grief. Laura, thank you so much for being here. Thank you very much for inviting me, Jenny. I really, really am very grateful, humbled, and honored to be here. <laughs> I always get excited in these conversations because well, I hope I can live, live up to that expectation <laughs> I'm sure you will um, as one of my coaches says I'm never surprised at the magic that can happen when two powerful people connect Yeah, and I, I see everybody as powerful 
we all have a story. Yeah. And as we powerfully connect, there's so much magic. And I, I get so excited by the magic that happens. Absolutely. I, I would totally agree with you. I think it's, it's through the power of conversation we discover new things, that we discover new things about ourselves, about other people. And as you rightly say, it's magic. Yeah. So Laura, in our previous conversation, you mentioned that you experienced the loss, a lot of loss and stress earlier in your life. And these led to eating disorders and mental health challenges. Tell us about that. So yeah, Jenny, uh, loss has been, I don't know, a bit of a feature, should we call it for that, um, in my life for, for a, or from a very young age. I'm sure there were losses before, but one of the earliest ones I can recall is when, as I like to call it, went to bed for two years. Not Now, strictly speaking, I didn't go to bed for the entire two years, but a significant proportion. See, what ended up happening was at age 13, I was on an adventure holiday camp with friends, and we took up a water skiing session. However, that session didn't go very well for myself. And I ripped the hip muscle um, from my hip. It sort of healed and very quickly, though the mobility in my leg got worse and I was in huge amounts of pain. So effectively, you can imagine kind of any time I was not either lying down or standing up and bending my leg, I was in excruciating pain, um, especially for any length of time. So I couldn't sit. So I couldn't have been sat here like I am now talking to, to you. Mm -hmm. uh, the challenge I had was until that point in time, I'd been really, really active. Done loads of running, played the cross. That was pretty much curtailed in that moment. Gradually, I was finding I was needing to spend more and more time resting in bed at home. Back then, you know, I'm 48 now. Back then, you know, there, there wasn't mobile phones. There wasn't, you know, social media. You know, you went to school and you met your friends, but it wasn't the same. Um, my mom took me to various consultants who kept telling me it was all in my mind uh, because they couldn't see it because it wasn't like a broken leg or anything which you can obviously visibly see and can show up in an x-ray. At the same time, I was getting the most horrendous migraines. And one thing that I knew about those was that they disappeared when I was sick. So what very quickly happened was I was grasping onto the one thing I could control, which was being sick in order to heal effectively the pain I was going through, in this case, the headaches, albeit mm -hmm. obviously that wasn't helping with anything to do with the hips. Um, and as time went on and I wasn't in school, I was missing the friendships. And, and then when I did go into school, suddenly they were like saying to me, oh my gosh, aren't you looking good? You know, and suddenly people wanted to talk to me. I was fitting in. And no surprises, this is kind of where the eating disorder started is because I was trying to 
release my emotions in some way that I could control something. And the one thing I could control was my food. And I knew it had, um, and initially, I knew it had an impact on how I felt because it stopped the migraines. Obviously, with time, that it becomes about, you know, you fitting in, etc. because obviously I wasn't at school, so therefore I wasn't fitting in because I wasn't mm-hmm. there. How could I? Um, by from pretty much not eating anything, I ended up at, well, five stone, which is about 70 pounds. Um, I, if I was eating an apple, that was too much. I probably counted even calories in water. Um, that that was the point to which I got to because I had I couldn't find a, a way to deal with what was going on for me. I think it, it, it that this pretty much carried on for two two years, just as I was about to sit to do my exams for what in the UK here is called GCSE which effectively allows you to go into sixth form to do your A-levels, which takes you to university. And so all these consultants who told me it was in my mind, it was rubbish. Suddenly I had a consultant who said to me, it's what they call a trochanteric bursitis, um, which in layman's terms is effectively you ripped the hip muscle and it's not healed properly and when it hasn't healed properly it creates scar tissue that's much tougher mm-hmm. than the tissue it's there before so with time of course that just meant I lost my mobility he just said to me right the moment you finished your exam you're coming in and we're going to do the operation so I did my exams <laughs> lying down in the school sanatorium um which was bizarre in itself and that night I basically went to hospital and I had bilateral hip surgery and back operation because it had taken so long for that for that to be diagnosed that I'd actually then thrown out my other hip and had ultimately moved the shape of my back because I'd lent on one side to to compensate for the pain I was feeling so I ultimately (laughs) I was just in this kind of slight mess should I say um, I did the exams, but I then spent six months effectively learning to walk again. But of course, all of this meant I was just not at school. I wasn't with my friends. And, you know, whilst I wanted normal life, the eating disorder had really taken hold by then. And the, the, the problem of the eating disorder has now become bigger than the problem of the emotions that I was dealing with. Um, but you know for me ultimately what ends up happening is that as I say the problem of the eating disorder starts becoming bigger than the original issue Mm -hmm. because you then become completely obsessive about it and as I was struggling to avoid eating which is obviously what I was doing initially I then needed to make myself sick more often and or as my sister say would used to say no you can't speak to to Laura she's talking to the talking to the toilet oh wow that was that was her my sister is 10 years younger than me but that was her way of dealing with what was going on because she didn't know what else to say to people Mm -hmm. um but you become slightly desperate um, and it, it's hard to understand how you can become so obsessive about something 
but when it becomes the only thing that you know can give you a level of relief it, it becomes this source of I just have to do I have to find a way that this happens um, but then there becomes a point where you don't not eat so you do eat and then feel guilty about that and so then you make yourself sick mm-hmm. then then with time you realize you're not making yourself sick enough because you can't make yourself and it's just a continual loop so then you start with the laxative abuse uh, which is where I ended up with um and probably at its worst I was abusing somewhere in the region of 300 laxatives a day um and which is a fair few that Um, that is a fair amount um and, and, you know, somebody said to me a, a little while ago, I have to ask you, Laura, but what, what does 300 laxatives actually do to you? And I said, actually, by the time you get to that stage, nothing, because there is nothing to get rid of your, out of your body. It is a sheer desperate attempt to relieve yourself of the emotion that, you just don't know you, you can't understand it and you don't know what to do with mm-hmm. um and and you know I, I it became to the point where I, I literally collapsed in the office and at that point because I you know at 70 pounds making myself sick and abusing 300 laxatives a day I'd become obsessive about that and there wasn't really that much you know there wasn't much, much of me left really I mean right that's half, that's half of what I am now so to give you some kind of context um and um so I knew I couldn't do it on my own because the laxative abuse alone was dangerous um mm-hmm. because I I could have a real issue with my kidneys if I kind of suddenly switched on or stopped taking the laxatives and then switched on taking all the fluid on that that's exceptionally dangerous so I um with my GP agreed that I I needed to um make myself an inpatient um at an acute eating disorders unit in in at a a hotel hospital in Mm -hmm. in London um which I did um but I, I think even then, you know, that whole fear of the unknown, that whole fear of what was I stepping into? What, what was I giving up? What was I letting go of? Really, really, it, I really struggled. Bearing in mind, you know, like I say, I was counting calories of water mm-hmm. in the extreme sense. To, to suddenly say, I'm going to rock up and somebody is going to take over and tell me that, I must eat at a certain time. I'm not allowed to leave the table until such is eaten and digested. Um, that really frightened me massively. I was 22, 23 at the time. Um, and um, so needless to say, the first night myself and this other girl very nearly got kicked off the unit because in our infinite wisdom, and I, I use that very, very loosely, we decided to go and buy, buy a bottle of, well, a litre of vodka, which we then consumed between the two of us, um, which, you know, if you can imagine being about, you know, 
five stone, not much of you, and then consuming, you know, even half a litre, well, even a sip of vodka was ridiculous. But right. But that was that was the state of fear that I was in. We very nearly got kicked off, as I say, because obviously that, that was against the rules. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't know, something in me said to me, because I'd been told categorically, I wouldn't make 30 if I carried on the way I was going because I'd already completely ripped my my throat to pieces from making myself sick. My my gut, et cetera, was kind of not in a good place. Um, I was suffering from other things such as endometriosis because my hormone levels weren't balanced. So, you know, I I was busily screwing my body up, you know, all in this bid. To, to, to kind of strangely remain sane, which just, when I when I say it now, just sounds completely back to front, inside out and upside down. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's kind of what ended up happening. Um, but I think that was the beginning of getting to grips with the eating disorder and who I was. Um, and how I wasn't dealing with emotions because I just didn't know what they were um, and hadn't really understood them. And so I tried to numb them uh, or tried to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. It probably took another 14 something years in order to truly get over them. And I, I can hand on heart, wherever it is, <laughs> it is still there, um, say that categorically I am over those now because I found a different way um and and for me it's you know I when people say you can't get over an eating disorder I I would challenge that there are ways for it I'm not sure necessarily going in and writing a food diary and counting every calorie um is the way forward which was many of the approaches that I received in the Mm -hmm. first stages of of help um but you know as I say I think that is the journey for me which you know obviously made me realize that I did not want to go back to that space I really did not want to go back to that space. not after having got myself out of that dark place and found mm-hmm. other ways um understandably so yeah <laughs> it is it's it's all consuming it, it becomes all-consuming and it, it's you know even if I as I sit here talking to you about it now I, I find it quite incredible that my entire day would be focused solely around the purchase of Maxis I mean for most people they'll be just sitting there going what mm-hmm. <laughs> you, you spent your entire day working out how you're going to be able to purchase 300 laxatives um and I would have because they got to a point where I actually had to have my doctor write me a letter in order to be able to purchase them because actually it would damage my health if I didn't take them that was how bad it was and and actually I couldn't buy that many over the counter in in the UK um not without somebody challenging me and saying you're not allowed to purchase that many which you know in with a rational mind of course um but -hmm. yes so I had to have special dispensations to be able to do that and I 
there's no life in that. But I think I don't think I ever expected to to get to that stage. You know, I it wasn't ever intentional. It wasn't ever about I needed to look pretty or, you know, which I know obviously loads of, you know, the press talk about, well, it's all about what's in the press. No, for me, it was nothing about wanting to look pretty. It was all about, I just didn't know how to cope with the situation I was confronted with. Loss had created, the loss of my friendships, the loss of my health, the loss of my mobility, the loss of being able to be you know, the sports person I was doing, the loss of so many things. And then my mother being super, super, super protective of me. Um, so therefore, of course, I couldn't then have the freedom of, you know, and she did it with the greatest intentions right. um, because she was concerned. Um, and she hated to think that I was in pain and there was nothing she could do, which I totally understand. That said, is that then I was then in this situation feeling completely helpless. Um, and, and what, you know, what can I do? What options are there for me mm-hmm. other than the one thing around food? Um, so, you know, and that's kind of how it really snowballed. Um, and it just then became this whole thing of, okay, well, it, you know, if, if then it became the thing about, you know, if I'm thinner and, you know, people want to talk to me and et cetera, et cetera, it never started out like that at all. Um, yeah and I don't my experience and certainly some of the clients I work with now that is true for them too it's not about the, the deep underlying thing is not about you know, a, a, they must look pretty there is something far deeper than that behind it um, so how did you dig deep within yourself and turn your start to turn your life around I I think I mean certainly I mean I spent seven months in hospital. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, the unit was part of the acute psychiatric ward, which was a, an experience in itself. I was exceptionally ill in the first month. Um, I, as a result of abusing so many laxatives, I took on loads and loads of water, and I was in agony with with that. And so I think that knowing that pain because we don't like to invite pain into our lives mm-hmm. um knowing that pain existed kind of was a bit of a push i think equally knowing what i had to go through the you know the restrictions on the door so the doors were locked at a certain time i couldn't do any any after a certain time you couldn't go anywhere so you know it really was part of an acute psychiatric ward um albeit that this was just the eating disorder unit um that kind of put me off too. And, and so part of it was fear, but I think the other part, and no, I didn't ever think that the diary part was ever useful, and I, I never have, mm-hmm. um, but was things like dance therapy, music therapy, um, things that were, because I didn't know the words. And this was the thing is I didn't, I felt something and I think that's probably about all I could say is I felt something at the time Mm -hmm. I didn't really know what it was and I couldn't express it and I think you know I I remember vividly (laughs) when I was at university I went to see a psychologist who was an eating disorder specialist who said to me I wasn't allowed to leave the session until I said something which is amazing given I can now 
quite happily talk. Um, but I back then I wouldn't say anything. And he said, you're not allowed to leave until until you say something, because you sound like a goose farting in the fog. I have no idea what a goose farting in the fog sounds like, but that's what he told me I sound like, because all you say, Laura, is mm, mm, mm. you don't say anything more. So I sat there for what turned out um, to be seven and a half hours. And the only reason I spoke in the end was because he started throwing things at me. I have no idea what I said, but I was so fearful of getting out because I, I just did not want this possibility of conflict that I, I obviously said something and I was allowed to eventually leave. But that for me was just, <laughs> that was not the way forward in terms of me trying to understand where I was at and what was going on. Whereas with, when I was in, as an inpatient, this whole idea of art therapy, music therapy, where it was, it was expression. So mm. it was like, I didn't know what I was gonna draw. <laughs> I didn't know what I was gonna paint, whatever it was. But it, it was just a release. And I think that that was the kind of the beginning of the turning point. I think we get so, um, and it, it's something that I, I recognize now is we, we can become so obsessed about, well, we can go and do meditation because um, that's going to calm us. Well, in amongst Sundays, meditation would not have helped me mm -hmm. um, because that's just not how my mind works. That's not my personal rest prescription. Um, my personal re rest prescription is to, I, I like swimming and I like learning. Uh, so I, it's not quite passive, but those are things that allow me to be totally in the moment to allow my brain to, to slow down, to process and be there. And I think it was then that I began to realize there are other ways that we can express our, our emotions that can be as meaningful as if we talk. Um, and, and particularly when we don't necessarily have the words um, to be able to express what it is. And I certainly didn't have the words at age 13 to know what the hell was going on other than the world telling me that I wasn't telling the truth and that I clearly, it was all in my mind and to just get on with it. Um, so, you know, as I say, I think, for me, that was the turning point because it was a different approach. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think so often we get pressured to use our voice as expression and that's the only way of expression. But um, there are so many different ways, uh, like you were saying, of expression, art, dance, movement, There are a huge number of ways, you know, and I think that is talking is just one of them. And I, you know, I, even even to the point where actually there are some who prefer to observe the conversation mm -hmm. and that is enough for them. They don't need to be part of the conversation. They're happy just to observe. And that is a release in itself. And, and I think it's the more that we try to say there's a particular way that we need to do things the more it sets up this expectation that says, if you don't do it this way, then it's wrong. There is nothing right or wrong about anything. There is only the way that feels right for you, which gives you what it is that you need. And I think that's one of the biggest things that I have learned throughout 
you know, especially in the, in the last five years, five and a half years, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. um, and it's been the difference for me. Um, yeah, processing grief, um, we're all individuals. Yeah. And I think, like you were alluding to, we need to find the ways that work for us. Yeah. How, how do I process grief? How do I process loss? How do I process these emotions, whether it's verbal or observing or witnessing or painting or drawing or dancing or cooking or running a marathon, whatever way that is, or even mentally um, going over the details? Yeah, precisely. And, and I think that's the thing is that, you know, we we can push on through with grief, but that rarely does anything. Um, it's very much, we do need to acknowledge in our own way, uh, grief. Um, and, you know, my, my observation is that, you know, and I talk about, I mean, grief is a collection of emotions. Ultimately loss is anything that we have invested time, love, energy, perhaps even money into and it is then gone or it has changed from what we expected so mm -hmm. what ends up happening is it creates this this gap this void and in that void we then go oh my gosh how am I going to cope what am I going to do all this stuff all this these emotions whatever comes and, and it is whatever comes anger sadness whatever frustration um, anxiety it'll be different for everybody based on the life experiences they've had before those emotions are collectively called grief um, so grief is never just one emotion it is a multitude of emotions and it will be different as you say and unique for every person and, it, and it's how do you deal with those and the thing is you have to acknowledge it you you can't you can't try to push on through it because if you don't acknowledge where those emotions are coming from, then how can you answer the question how? And I think this was one of the things that I, I, I really realized was no matter how you find your particular way to acknowledge the emotions, there is a need to acknowledge them. Mm -hmm. um, and, and I call them to, to ground your grief. Um, which is just saying, what are these emotions? You know, what what do they mean for me? So I, I when my husband died, you know, one of the things that I re recognised was that I felt angry because because the whole experience in the last few days was right. I'm standing there in the corridor having a call with his solicitor, saying, no, Friday will not do because if we wait until Friday. He will be dead uh, so, and I was like and I should not have been having those kinds of conversations because had somebody been honest and open rather than tried to protect me um we would have had those conversations and all this stuff would have been sorted so I had to so I had to really I mean at the time I was just angry um mm -hmm. along with a load of other things feeling helpless and hopeless um but I had to come to terms with where is that anger coming from? What specifically was it? What, what do I, what does that mean for me? 
Um, and I think it was then that I started to really turn it because we can't, how can we, how can we say, how am I going to cope if we don't know what we're coping with? Mm-hmm. And, and I think certainly for me, that was a real turning point to recognize the difference because we're so used to as, as humans going out and going, well, I must do more to fill this gap. I've got to do more. Well, but there's no point in doing if you don't know what it is that you're trying to, to do it for. That makes sense. Yeah. Um, so tell us more about um, what it was like when you lost your husband. And then you mentioned that you lost not only your husband, but then your career and your health. Yeah. So, yeah, five, five and a bit years ago, um, my, I, I like, shall we, shall we say, my life spectacularly imploded. <laughs> It's probably the easiest way to describe it. Um, it's not quite. It wasn't quite in the life plan like this. Um, yeah. But literally everything I knew um, and worked hard to achieve. Um, I don't have children, as you, as you know, but literally gone in a matter of weeks. Um, indeed, then that first Christmas, uh, my my then four-year-old nephew said to me, "Auntie lollipops," aka me. Uh, now that Uncle Chris is dead, uh, you have nothing, he said. Thanks, Hugo. Um, he did, however, say he would kindly look after me for 100 days. <laughs> Bless him. Um, but, you know, that's a really long time when you're four. But when you're 42, well, that wasn't going to get me much past March. Uh-huh. Um, so I will say back then, I really did feel like I had nothing. I, you know, everything I had worked for just gone I felt like I was living in some kind of parallel universe to the one that everybody else was living in I felt absolutely exhausted overwhelmed lost uncertain of what or how to get back to the comfort of frankly what I'd left uh, well the, the, the universe the world I'd not chosen to live really leave mm-hmm. really um so you know it kind of, I did feel like I, I was had nothing um my mind especially was just you know I, I can only describe it as feeling like I was being battered in this washing machine spin cycle and to the point where any more pressure and I was just literally going to spin off my my axle uh, I just had no no uh, I couldn't keep up. I, I just didn't know where I was going, what I was doing, frankly. Mm-hmm. So, so it was not helped by the fact that so it, in, in the whole sequence of events, you know, my my husband had what is called a Whipple procedure, which ultimately was a 14 hour operation that was meant to save his life. And actually, at the end of the surgery, um, having me worn out the carpet at the hospital, um, pacing up and down, the surgeon said to me, well, you know, it was a bit further than we thought, but we've got it all. Go away and have a nice 10 years of your life. Um, So three months later, to be sitting there in the hospital again, and the demise is really clear. And so we're back there at the hospital, and Chris, before we 
go back makes me make some promises of which one is that I will carry on with my life, which is obviously always easier being the person that potentially is not going to be there versus the person who's left behind having to pick up the pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, but we went back and it was very quick. It was exceptionally quick. It's, it, it was almost like he'd had enough. Um, and so it was nine days and um, he died in the early hours of the 9th of July, 2015. Then it was all whole sort out the funeral. You just go into being busy in bereavement. And then at that point, I, I don't think I really noticed. I, I didn't feel particularly stressed or anything like that. Um, I ended up sorting out the funeral and then literally the day after the funeral I started to be in severe pain and so I, I got my mum to take me to any um and um they found a, a small well a, a minor urinary infection and they said well we'll just keep you overnight and do 12 hours of observations within four hours I was severely jaundiced and a short while afterwards, I was experiencing every single symptom that my husband had had of pancreatic cancer. I was basically mimicking what he'd had. Um, and everybody was in quite a panic because they didn't know what was going on. They couldn't understand why my body was basically shutting down um, and that my liver function was off the Richter scale. Um, it should be about maximum 50. I was almost 8,000 um and very very poorly um so I was rushed and they still spent a month in hospital and they still didn't really know what was going on other than they believed I'd had a stress response to losing my husband and Mm -hmm. that I was the total empath and that was about the best they could come up with um I then um was let release from hospital, I didn't realize how much jaundice affects how the mind works. So on top of the widow brain, as it's affectionately recalled, which is where your body is trying to protect itself to slow down so that you can process what's going on. Mm -hmm. I was suffering with the effects of jaundice too. Didn't realize any of that at the time. Went back to work, um, only to discover I'd got a new boss who who had been my peer and was promoted above me, which didn't fare very well um so behind closed doors it was him bullying me and it culminated in a meeting with him with HR in the room where he basically screamed at me for two and a half hours and told me I was useless and various other things and it came to the point where I looked into my lap because I realized there was nothing there was absolutely no point in me saying anything because he'd made his mind up and that he said, see, even you know that you're no good. <laughs> but, okay, you know. Um, and I just, it was just, you know what? No, I have no energy to deal with this anymore. Enough's mm-hmm. enough. Um, but I was determined that I would hold my head up high. And yeah, I was let go about three, four weeks after that. Um, but I had held my integrity and the way I wanted to be in that space. Um, but yeah, it meant that 2016 was started with, oh my gosh, where do I go now? You know, what do I do next? Um, and I think you do. And I think one of the things that I did do 
which is, you know, and I see now a lot with people is that when a hole opens up in one's life, we try to fill it with, with stuff quite quickly. So Chris had gone from my life and, you know, there was kind of almost a relationship hole that was missing. Mm-hmm. So I, I and I, I met a really lovely guy who I really, really liked. And he he then ended it and I couldn't really understand why he'd ended it because he kept saying to me I can't fit into Chris's shoes and I'm just like well I don't want you to be fitting into Chris's shoes you know you're nothing like Chris and and I didn't get it back then I I really didn't um and I was desperately upset about you know this sort of rejection again and I my gosh I've got this huge hole in my life again but actually now you know five so years on I actually think he's given me and and he knows this because I still am in touch with him he's given me the greatest gift because I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing now and at, at the time then it became this whole thing of right okay I need to get the world to slow down mm, <laughs> I need, mm-hmm. need to find a space where the world is going to slow down and and I if my mother had said to me one more time I think you should go and do a ballet class <laughs> they talk about the meditation my mother was insistent that I needed to do a ballet class I'm afraid at 42 with, with being somewhat well endowed standing in a leotard was not really what I what I was up for you know I was Uh really really vulnerable as it was you know without standing there in a leotard at 42 Um, yeah but my mother was but you've always enjoyed that you've always but you know but that's unfortunately what you know family and friends who who don't who want to protect you you know and doing this in your best interest but if you want to do something different you want to find yourself you, you sometimes have to you know break the ties a little bit Mm -hmm. um so I decided that right I knew the only way I was going to stop um because I'm a bit of a fun lover of the sunshine was to take myself off 5,000 miles away to the wonderful beautiful beautiful island of Aruba and um and I've never even heard of it at that stage, but I was guaranteed sunshine. That, that was all I cared about. <laughs> so, so I got on the plane and um, I, I had to smile when I arrived the other, other, other end as I was welcomed by uh, the taxi driver who said to me, well, welcome to the happy island. <laughs> I was just like, the irony was not lost, I will say. Because uh-huh. I was okay, so I'm coming and I, I've got, you know, I'm not really sure why I'm here and I've come on a holiday on my own 5,000 miles away with, a, with excess baggage because God knows why but I've got excess baggage that I've just paid for um, and I'm probably going to find some use for it and it cost me a fortune but you know hey and here I am what I'm going to do for two weeks other than sit on the beach um, I don't know um, and, and here you're now you're telling me it's the happy island um, so it was one of those things where two weeks very quickly I realized it wasn't wasn't enough and um, I, I I don't think I, I think I certainly did nothing for the holiday brochure that's for sure because I, I spent a lot of time sitting on the sun lounger just literally crying my eyes out just mm-hmm. going and, and asking this question, how am I going to cope? How am I going to cope? But actually, 
then I started to ask like a different question and it was kind of the question when I and I think I said this before that when I shifted it from how was I going to cope to what was I coping with that was the difference for me and I as I sat there I decided right the plane needed to go two weeks wasn't long enough um and my father at the time was dying of late stage blood cancer so there was the whole pressure do I return back but he'd said no no you need to do this Laura you need to stay um I, I sense there's still more for you that you want to do so he'd kind of given me his blessing although and I did it in the end come back in time before he died sadly mm -hmm. um but it was very much a case of no I needed to do this I really need to discover it so every day I would go out to the private island and sort of sit there and look out into the ocean and ponder in my little sketch pad and it wasn't really much more than words because that was about the best I could could deal with at the time but it was all acknowledging where I was at and I asked myself three questions um who am I now what's important to me and what makes me feel truly alive because I desperately wanted to feel alive again and that basically those three questions on that beach in Aruba became what I now affectionately call as Project Me is, mm -hmm. is the basis of the life that I, I now live well, five and a half years later. Um, and so, as I say, I did return home um, after about seven weeks um, to be home, sadly to see my dad die, but um, I wouldn't have done anything different than that. Um, and since then, I have moved, 90 miles around the M25, which in the UK is a long distance, um, and moved to a town I didn't know, um, bought a house, renovated into a home, made friendships far deeper than before because I took the time to, to do that, mm -hmm. um, and then set up a business that I am totally passionate about. And that is all born out of those three questions. Um, has it been easy? <laughs> Definitely not. At the point I, I arrived here and my neighbour at the time decided that he thought it was my fault that there was some noise. So he served me with what in, in the UK is called an ASBO, an antisocial behaviour order. Um, he didn't bother to kind of check out with me before he decided to, to do that. But it, this is like seen as a really bad thing to receive because you receive it from the government as opposed to from the neighbour. Um, so there's a little, this was not how I would envisage that I was going to meet um, my neighbours, that's for sure. Um, and, but, you know, I took a breath and I kind of dealt with it. I didn't react, I, I responded and, you know, we are now friends. Um, since then mm -hmm. um, and and he just I just was the poor unfortunate person who crossed his path that moment um, have I wanted to give up yeah without a doubt um, mm -hmm. you know when I so this house that I have renovated I will say at the point at which I was kind of wondering why things were slowing up a little bit and there's no back wall to to the house and I'm standing in the front hallway and I can see three, three floors because it's a, a three-story house. And it's a shell of its former 
house-like status and the builder and I'm sort of challenging the builders to what's going on and he said well Laura I'm really sorry to tell you but um I am I'm, I'm going to have to declare I'm bankrupt and I can't carry on the job in in the way I um have um and oh by the way the 20 grand that you thought had bought the windows uh, that's missing as well um <laughs> At that point, I definitely felt like I wanted to give up. Um, but no, I drew on Project Me and I drew on what was important to me. And for me in that situation, I had this vision of this calm oasis away from the busyness outside the front door that was going to be filled with fun, laughter, flowers, family and friends. And that, that was basically what I had in my mind how I got there could change you know, uh -huh. that's what I wanted so that's what I worked really hard to do so I I did end up working still with the builder I became builders project manager extraordinaire <laughs> so, so if all if if anything else in my life fails you know there's always a job for me doing project management <laughs> because, you know I mean who knew I mean I, the things I have learned who knew that a, a floor tile could neither be flat or right angled I didn't you know, uh -huh. <laughs> know but you know trust me when you're laying a 32 foot kitchen um if it's out by five millimeters each tile that's a really big gap by the time you get to the end um so, uh, you know, yeah, I, I can believe. You know, I, I think he, I think the way I see it is that you know, there was nothing I could do to predict that these things were going to happen. They just happened. I mm -hmm. had a choice as to how I embraced them, um, and you know, I could embrace them with anger or frustration, or whatever, or stress, or just hide away from it, but to what end was that going to get me, you know, in my, in my house, the, the calm oasis that I was looking for, mm -hmm. well, it, it wasn't. Um, I'm not saying it was easy by any stretch of the imagination, um, but I guess that, that is the thing, you know, I won't say I've done it alone. I, I very much recognize the value of people who have lifted me along the way, whether they are, you know what I call light leaders, those who inspire me because um, I, I share their values or that they're torchbearers because they've gone before. Mm -hmm. um, but you know, then I've had coaches, therapeutic coaches, who have supported me. You know, partly to 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 do. You know, I mean, for those who don't know what a therapeutic coach is, it's sort of this balance between a therapist. So there's a listening part. But then there's also the bit about enablement, encouragement, empowerment that a coach can deliver. Um, okay. and it's very much the, because of my experience of that. That's very much why I headed down the specific route I did with my training, mm -hmm. um, because I recognize this careful balance of the two that is so important. Um, because ultimately you want to feel empowered. You don't want to feel totally dependent on somebody in order to be able to get through a situation. Right. Um, and what I recognize by building myself from within and looking within that has allowed me to take more, oh, oh that's not good English, stronger steps forward that have mm -hmm. allowed me to be more anchored grounded when other things have happened 
Um, so when, you know, obviously the neighbor decided to do what he did and the builder told me he was bankrupt because I was grounded in, you know, what was important to me and who I was, that allowed me to be far more flexible with how I was going to get there to achieve what it was that I wanted. Because he, need, he still needed a job and money. I still needed my house to be fixed. So we just had to find a way to make that work in order that I got my car racing. So, right. and, and I think that for me is how, because I just went within to find the answers rather than look out there, well, I need to go out and find somebody else to, to give me the answer. That's the difference. Um, Amazing. So how do you help people look within to find their own answers, to give them the strength to go on? I think a lot of the work I do is help people to, as I said earlier on, to, to ground their grief, to acknowledge where they're at and what that is and what does that mean for them? What is the feeling that they're feeling right now? So do they feel dis disconnected? Do they feel guilt? So clearly they want to feel connected. They don't want to feel guilty. Well, where's that coming from? What, mm -hmm. What's that all about? Um, and so I very much help people get to grips with that I, because ignoring that means you haven't got a strong anchor with your next step. Then it's about the action part. Um, I quite often use an analogy that grief is like, and loss is like a, a teaspoon of salt in a teacup of water. It's really, really nasty and unpalatable when it first happens or when it's first you first taste it, if you can bear to taste it. The thing is, is that the only way that's going to become palatable is if you add more water. So you take action to it. The thing is, is with time and a little bit more action, actually becomes a little bit more palatable. Mm -hmm. Then with even more action and more adding of water, you need to change the vessel so that it's large enough to carry the water. The salt has never disappeared. That's the thing with loss and grief. It never disappears. It just morphs and shapes based on the actions that you take. The actions can be really, really small. They don't need to be big. Um, but it is the action that makes the difference. Doesn't the time frame is up to you? You know, you mm -hmm. add the water as quickly and or as slowly as you want. That is set by yourself. But ultimately, that teacup of salty water will not change without action. You can stare at it all you like, um, but without adding some action, some water, it's not going to change. Um, and it, with time, it does. And clearly the important bit is the action, because I know many people will dispute, well, you know, time doesn't heal. Well, no, time doesn't heal if you don't do anything mm -hmm. um, and, and don't acknowledge where the grief is coming from and what that means for you and find your own way to create meaning, create the story that comes out of what you've lost. Um, you know, so I, I know very vividly, one of the things that I gained um, is that both through my, my um, husband and my father was this idea of this need to openly and honestly communicate. Um, and so as a result of Chris not telling me you know, certain things, um, that that meant that 
my father and I had some conversations before he died that I don't think we would ever have had um, had he not seen how much I had been upset by the lack of communication, um, albeit for purely um, loving reasons. Like, you know, I don't, it was not malicious that Chris was not talking to me. It was purely mm-hmm. he was trying to protect me. But in trying to protect me, he was actually ultimately making it much harder for me to deal with it. Um, and, and so, you know, the irony of it was that I, I then said I wanted to talk at my father's funeral. And my mother was not very sure about that. She thought, was I going to be strong enough? And um, I said, no, no, I'll be fine. I'll be fine. What I didn't realise is that in what I had written and what my father had written for his eulogy was all about open and honest conversation and the need for that. I didn't know that. I'd written my bit. He'd written his bit, obviously, before he died. And and so I'd written it as my father's gift to me um, was it's not to to openly talk and discuss these things is not is not a weakness it's not it's actually of great strength because the more that we talk the more that we can learn the more that we can discover the more that we can have these conversations that count that is the difference for us exploring and understanding and connecting for me so beautiful and that takes us to the time that we have and so I think it's a fantastic place to end the need for communication and sharing our stories, sharing our experiences, being there for each other. So speaking of being there, Laura, where can people find you? So where can people find me? Currently, you can find me on Facebook and LinkedIn, which is Laura Toop, Bridging the Gap. I think is is how it comes up, but my surname is so unique, <laughs> and it's spelled T double O P for Peter. Um, so you'll you'll find me there, or to go to my website currently, which is www.thelostconnection for one word dot uk. Um, let's say if you Google Laura Toop, there aren't that many of us. <laughs> Thank God. <laughs> Wonderful. Thank you so much, Laura, for being with us and sharing your story with us. Well, thank you for giving me the opportunity, Jenny. I really appreciate it. And I'm very grateful. Thank you. I've learned so much from you today. Thank you. And if you've enjoyed this session, join us next time when we meet Christabeth Atwood, a pastor for people who don't do church. She will share her experience of trauma and assault as well as her journey of healing and hope. And uh, more of my work can be found on my website, grievingcoach.com or LinkedIn. I'm Jenny Diltz, hyphen grieving coach. So I look forward to next time and more stories. Mm-hmm.